Eric, today is a very exciting day. Do you know why it's an exciting day? Tell me, Scott. Tell me why. Because for the last month or two, we've been doing ad reads for our benevolent overlords at Fangoria.com slash Fangoria Magazine, who we, who we love very much. But today we are introducing to the show studio ad reads. We are here to spread the good word about a couple of films coming from RLJE. That's right. This week's episode is sponsored by RLJE Films. The first title up is for Neil Marshall's The Reckoning. You know, Neil Marshall, he's the director of hit horror films such as The Descent and Dog Soldiers. And The Reckoning is now playing in theaters on demand in digital HD. Led by co-writer and star Charlotte Kirk, witness this powerful and terrifying story of a young woman falsely accused of being a witch and the cruel and violent punishment she endures throughout her trial. Own The Reckoning today on Apple TV. You can get to it by going to bit.ly slash The Reckoning Movie. Hey, you did pretty good with that. No, let me hey. give it a shot. I got one too. I got one too. You got one? Jesus, how many movies are these guys making? A thousand. This particular film is one I have actually seen already. I love this movie. Uh, it's a Shutter original documentary called Horror Noir, and it is now available to own on DVD and Blu-ray. Horror Noir takes viewers through a thrilling 120-year history of film, revealing the untold story of black Americans in the horror genre using new and archival interviews from scholars and creators. Order your copy of Horror Noir on Amazon.com today and discover the rich history of black horror. The one thing I want to add to this is I wa- when I watched this movie, it gave me like 10 new movies to watch that I had not seen yet, and they all whipped ass. If you're looking for great horror recommendations, go through Horror Noir. And while we're here, we might as well tell you once again about our friends over at Fangoria. They've been publishing that magazine for over 40 years, and it is better than ever. Each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horror's past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. Where can they get it, Eric? You can get it at Fangoria.com. And as a bonus to all of our KingCast listeners, if they want to sign up for an annual subscription, and they absolutely should, they can get 25% off by entering the promo code KingCast at checkout. There's also the Chainsaw Awards going on right now, and there's still time to vote for your favorite horror movie of 2020. You should go do that, and you can do that by visiting bit.ly slash Chainsaw Awards. With all of that said, on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Well, sometimes that is better. Hello and welcome back to the Kingcast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Today's guest is one of our favorite genre filmmakers here at the show. After making his feature debut with 1997's Cube, he went on to direct such films as 2009's Splice, 2013's Haunter, and over the course of many years, he helmed episodes of Hannibal, Hemlock Grove, The Strain, Wayward Pines, Westworld, Jesus, Vincenzo, you've been fucking everywhere, and will be known to our listeners as the guy who recently directed In the Tall Grass, a Stephen King adaptation for Netflix, and two key episodes from CBS All Access's The Stand, which is uh, wrapping its run this week. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Vincenzo Natali. Did I just say your name wrong? 
<laughs> no, no, you said it perfectly. Better okay. than I would. Okay. Thank you. Nice introduction, my God. Yes, of course. Ooh, rolling out the red carpet for you, man. Now yeah, you've had your your fingers in a bunch of great stuff, uh, as as well as uh, stuff that's uniquely of interest to our listeners. You've been deep in like Stephen King and Joe Hill <laughs> worlds. You, you did some Lock and Key, right? Yeah, yeah, I did the last two episodes of the uh, first season. Yeah, yeah. Eric, Eric, when you started that sentence, and you're like, you you've had your finger in a lot of good things, but also I thought you were about to say bad things. I'm like, yeah. is this and also, you've done right. fucked up so much stuff. <laughs> yeah. I thought you said all the it. things that I have failed to make, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is yeah. a fairly <laughs> lengthy list. By the way, <laughs> you and Guillermo del Toro. That's that's fine. You're in good company. You know, I worked in the movie blogging world for many, many, many years, and you were a guy I was always hoping would pop up. Uh, like for a uh, an interview opportunity at some point because I've been following your work for many years and I'm a big fan. Uh, that opportunity somehow never came around despite you. Like, weren't you at Fantastic Fest within the tall grass? I was, yeah. Yeah. Was and uh, waiting. that's fucking crazy. But yeah, anyway, I talked to uh, him there. I talked to him there. Okay, Eric, it's not a competition, but uh, I I did not get to speak to Vincenzo then. Uh, which me, which all adds up to right now, I'm going to tell you how much I love cube cube is one of my favorite little indie horror movies. It's so nasty and also just kind of diabolical. And I love everything about it. The set design. I love the performances. I saw that movie at a crucial time in my life where my then girlfriend and I at the time were just, we would just go to blockbuster and we would pick horror movies based on their cover boxes. And then we would take them home and watch them. This is also how around this exact time that I saw Cube, I also saw Session 9 for the first time. And those two movies are kind of linked in my mind as a result. Uh, and I, I love both of those movies just so dearly and was so excited to just stumble across them on a, on a blockbuster shelf one day. So thank you so much for making that movie. And also, I really appreciate the... Uh, how Cronenbergian splices and also how uh, weirdly horny it is. So thank you for that. <laughs> oh, well, it comes naturally, but uh, thank you. That's so <laughs> nice of you. God. Yeah. I mean, you know, these things are like your children. Uh, I'm sure you have things like this in your life as well. Uh, and so when somebody says something nice like that, it's, it feels real good. That's, of uh, course. Means a Happy lot. to say it. Is cube the one people come up to you about the most or is it yes splice? that's probably uh, it kind of depends you know it's sort of tipping towards splice it feels like these days but that's probably just because cube is so damn old um <laughs> but uh yeah you know it's I, I think cube will be the thing that's imprinted on my gravestone i'm pretty sure what are your how do you feel about that movie these days are you sick of talking about it or are you just like oh no no, you know, no like, I mean, what's, your, what's your memory of of in general, like what's your feeling towards cube? Again, it's like my, my child, um, right. you know, all the films I've done have been made with rubber bands and paper clips and made with friends and in a way that is, um, you know, the furthest thing from corporate filmmaking. So, so they're all passion projects and um, for better or worse, you can blame me for everything in them. And, and cube is, you know, prime example and it was the first one and it was a trial by fire. I mean, it was an absolutely traumatic experience making it. There's no question. <laughs> I don't recommend anybody goes into a cube to make a film. Um, it seemed like a good idea at the time. 
but aren't you executive producing a remake right now I am. I know. Well, I like to torture. I, I like to torture Japanese people. So um, we're there's you know, your headline, we're, folks. We're doing a remake in Japan. My wife is Japanese, so I, okay. I, I've been torturing her for 15 years. But uh, no, I of course I love Japan deeply, and um, and in fact, the reason I met my wife was because of Cube, um, because it took me to Japan, and I have tremendous respect and love for that culture and. Um, and there is a Japanese remake being made as we speak. Well, it's about time that cuts the other way for once. Yeah, I know. I know. It's <laughs> nice. North, North American well, movie and remake it in, in Japan versus the other way around. Uh, you know, there's there had been talk uh, about a Cube remake in America, and it just, it's not to say anything against that, but it, it doesn't interest me. But the idea of it in Japan did make it extremely interesting because I know that it'll become something else and something very specific oh, totally. to that culture. How, how do you feel about, well, I guess I, I don't know if I should bother asking you on the air. I was going to say, have you seen the the sequels and what did you think? But maybe you don't like the sequels so much. So maybe I shouldn't bother. Well, no, I, you know, I, in my, in my uh, foolish youth, when um, Cube came out, I was offered to, you know, direct or produce the sequels. And I said, no, because I, I just didn't think, there was a sequel to be made from Cube. It was hard enough making a two-hour movie out of that right. uh, setting and that concept. Um, and I, I kind of saw it like Jaws. Like, you know, there's never really been a good sequel to Jaws because there's really only one story to tell. Um, it's right. people with a shark. And um, and I thought Cube was the same and therefore divested myself from that franchise. And they did make two. And the first one I watched 15 minutes of and then I just turned it off. So I can't really comment on it, but it was kind of what... I feared. Uh, and then the third one I did see, and I thought there was really good stuff. In, like, I think that they didn't remake the first movie. I think that, mm-hmm. or just retread the same concept. They took at it, took a different perspective. Like they, if mine was a Sartre play, theirs was a Pinter play, you know, and it was all from the perspective of the people who run the cube. And I thought that was very clever. I love that one yeah. theory. Like exactly what you, you, the description you just gave is, is pitch perfect. You know, I love the idea of these like two schlubs working somewhere in the bowels of the yo know, cube industries or whatever, you know, it's called. And mm-hmm. just like, you got to press a button now and do this and do that. Like, I love this concept. Um, wasn't crazy about the final product, but you're right. There is good shit in in that one. And I appreciated what they were going for, but not quite. It felt like they just didn't quite have the reach for it or something. Yeah, it's a hard thing to pull off. Eric, do you have anything you want to add about? about Yeah, I was going to say, it's funny you mentioned the Jaws connection because Spielberg has uh, said, you know, multiple times that, uh, you know, in his youth, he he, he turned down Jaws. One, he didn't want to go back on the water. It was such a demoralizing, you know, uh, uh, shoot for him. But he was also, you know, like you said, it was the same thing. He where what's the sequel? You know, it's just going to be the same movie. You know, probably done worse. But like he said on record many times that like now he regrets not doing it because he he wishes that you know he could have controlled what the what the series would have been. Do you have any of that that feeling now looking back, or are you still happy? You're just like, nope, I moved on, and and that was it. Uh, I don't know. My older, more cynical self does feel that way because people talk about the sequels all the time. And I am sure they assume, or a lot of people assume I am a part of that. So mm-hmm. I don't think there's any avoiding it. So yeah, I, I think so. And um, 
And also it was just an amazing opportunity. You know, the deeper I get into this, the more I realize how lucky I was the first time. Because <laughs> it's really hard getting a movie made. And when people are just throwing the opportunity to make movies or produce movies, it shouldn't be taken lightly. And um, having said that, I, I truly never, ever, 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 ever want to go into a cube again. So <laughs> <laughs> I remember reading like the description of the plot and it felt like so just particular to it, it felt like a movie that had been written with me in mind. Yeah, I'll keep. Ge- I told you I was going to geek out on you about this. Oh, but, cool, thank uh, you. Keep, <laughs> don't don't stop geeking. Thank you. It's, it's really it's really kind. I mean, if you saw the way it was made, you would laugh yourself sick because uh, it was like a slow motion catastrophe. But somehow we got through to the end. All worth it in the end, baby. I do have a, a question about it. Is it true that if you suck on a button, that helps helps you in survival situations? <laughs> I've always wondered because that. that's something that stuck it, with me since my very first viewing. That I guess I just logged in the back of my mind in, in case I ever like found myself without water. I, I, well, I haven't tested it yet, but apparently it stimulates saliva. So I'm not sure it actually helps you, but it, it makes you feel better. Okay, is that why you always wear shirts with so many buttons on them, Eric? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. In case you find yeah, yourself d- in days and days without water, I can't go. <laughs> Well, you are uh, also uh, a known Stephen King fan. I'm always curious to hear everyone's Stephen King origin story, but particularly yours, given that you've worked on some King projects. Like, how did he first enter your life? Uh, You know, I don't think I'm unique in any way. I think my story is that of so many people of my generation. Um, And I am of a certain vintage. So I remember when those books were first coming out and seeing those covers um, that were so striking. Um, And... My first King experience was reading The Shining when I was 11, and it was because of the movie, (laughs) because I wanted to see the movie, and I couldn't, because in Canada, which is where I'm from, uh, a restricted film, which is what The Shining was, uh, means that unless you're 18, you can't see the film with a parent or a guard. It doesn't matter. You you just can't get in. And so Mm -hmm. I was forced to read, and it was kind of... um, a mind expanding experience because it was the first book, first adult, what I would consider adult book that I had ever read. Um, But much more than that, it was the first book that where I felt the voice of the writer. It was the Mm -hmm. first time that I thought that there's somebody who is guiding me through this with a very specific perspective. And it was in the syntax and even the way, you know, he used capitals and italics, um, and, and it was, even at that age, I could tell, like, it was very psychological. It hit me in a very personal way, too, because, you know, being 11 years old, I wasn't that much older than Danny. And mm-hmm. earlier in my life, I had experience with a bit of a Jack Torrancey type character, you know, so that resonated. And, uh, and then I think there was just something that Stephen King does, which, of course, is why he's the most popular writer of all time which is he taps into these archetypal notions and these archetypal common uh, feelings that we all have. And then he posits them within Americana. And he does it with people that are familiar with us and blue collar people and really settings that weren't typical, I think, of horror fiction at that time. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And so you feel as the reader even me as an 11 year old, I felt like I knew those people intimately. I felt like I was one of those people. And therefore everything that happened to them felt like it was happening to me. 
And then the book terrified me. <laughs> and, I, and I read it, I think I read it in a, a two-day period. It was like a lightning bolt in a way. And it kind of, I think it sort of booted me into adolescence a little bit. Like it kind of kicked me out of childhood fiction and childhood interests and kind of into a more adult space. And then coincidentally, I think around the same time, my mom gave me Tales of Mystery and Imagination at Growlin Poe's short stories. And I really glommed onto some of those. And I think I recognized the connective DNA between Stephen King and Edgar Allan Poe. Mm -hmm. Um, And so sort of there was some kind of weird synergy going on there between those two things that really ignited my imagination. You know, that's 1980. So I was kind of in that place, like the prime moment to discover Stephen King. And it, it was just so much part of the zeitgeist in the same way that Steven Spielberg as a filmmaker was just such a deep part of the evolution of culture at that time in a way that I think at that time people didn't fully comprehend. They didn't realize what giants these two figures would be. Um, Yeah, so it it really was that. And it's never left me entirely. There's a lot of parallels between Spielberg and King. Stephen King is essentially like a the Stephen King or the Stephen Stephen King is the Stephen King of Stephen King's. Uh, Stephen King is like the <laughs> Steven Spielberg of American horror. And it's for exactly the reasons you just pinpointed. The dad from Close Encounters of the Third Kind is just a guy with two kind of annoying kids, you know, and he's just trying to get through his his day and he witnesses something amazing. And now it rocks his world. And now he's got to go on and, and investigate it. Jaws is a, a, a blue collar thing, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, famously... Oh, sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt. Well, just this is all just to say that that universality is, I think that's why they're both as successful as they are. They're telling stories of the astonishing and the strange and the frightening, and they're telling them about people like you. If Stephen King were writing about like upper crust sort of, I don't know, I was going to say tech billionaires, but I would actually read a Stephen King book where a tech billionaire is just getting harassed by a ghost or some shit. But um you know what I'm saying? It's every it's every man's stuff. And they are insanely imaginative creators. One's a filmmaker, one's a writer, but they they go together very well. And I think they are both the others, you know, twinner to use a, a Stephen King term for uh, across those industries. It's kind of shocking that Spielberg never directed a Stephen King book. But I know a talisman was sort of somewhere in his development slate but we think yeah, amber for, still has the rights did you know the the history of of spielberg approaching king to write poltergeist i, I did a little bit yes yes yeah, i mean I and and, yeah. and when you watch poltergeist that is very much a spielberg doing stephen king as a writer you know because that's you know, everything that we've talked about it was salem's lot was moving the vampires out of gothic horror and into a small town Americana. Right. And, and uh, poltergeist was bringing, you know, ghosts out of Victorian mansions and putting it, you know, in a, in a suburb, you know, that's, it it is the parallels between Spielberg and King are, are, are vast. And I do love, uh, and I'm never going to not think about it this way anymore. After Scott called Spielberg, uh, King's twinner, that is, that is absolutely, (laughs) 
That is absolutely accurate. Because uh, <laughs> Roy, uh, Roy Neary in Close Encounters is like the Spielberg version of Jack Torrance. He just yep. abandons his exactly. family at the end instead of, you know, instead of, uh, you know, trying to kill him with an axe exactly. or, or a croak mallet. And, and you know, I was just reading um, this morning, actually, that I, I didn't know this. But I don't know anything hardly about Rose Red, which is like a 2002 miniseries that uh, mm-hmm. that King wrote. But I was I was kind of catching up with it on on Wikipedia and it was saying that uh, King originally wanted to write it as a very loose remake of The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. And he brought it to Spielberg and they worked on it for several years before Spielberg wanted like more action scenes and shit in it, basically more spectacle. And King wanted it to be more hardcore horror. And then eventually they just, you know, agreed to go their their separate ways on it and King bought the rights back and then turned it into a mini series. But uh, I didn't know that before today. No, nor did I. That's amazing. We're I mean, all I think, learning things. <laughs> I think where they, they diverge is that I was thinking of Stephen King as like the first rock and roll horror writer. Right. So there's not a lot of rock and roll in Steven Spielberg. I think that, that there's an edge to Stephen King that for all of his, you know, sympathetic portraits of, the various characters and, you know, the warm side to him, there, there is, there is a darkness lurking there that is, you know, kind of in another universe from where Spielberg exists. I would argue that Steven Spielberg's version of that is action adventure and, and King's is horror. So of course it's not going to be as dark. I don't think. Well, and Spielberg also changed once like he became a family man, like the, the Spielberg that made duel and jaws are very much, I mean, Lizzie, he was still, you know, a very optimistic guy and emotionally, you know, forward guy and all that stuff. But like, I don't know, you watch Jaws and, you know, Quint's death ain't nothing to to blink at, you know, it's, uh, but, but could I imagine him killing, ever doing anything where he writes a, a story with a kid, you know, in it where he kills the kid at the end, like Cujo or, you know, like, I don't think Spielberg has that in him even, even back then. But but back then, you know, it definitely not post family Spielberg. He but, killed um, a robot boy in AI, but I guess that's Kubrick. He, I, it could be. <laughs> and and yeah. I'm not saying Spielberg doesn't have an edge. By the way, I think I like yeah. Dark Spielberg. I think he, that's, yeah, uh, Temple of Doom there, rules. We all know this. Yeah, totally. No, no, I, there's 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 twisted stuff there. I think there's just Indiana Jones beats a child in Temple of Doom for fuck's sake. <laughs> That is a very strange film. I don't know why I laughed (laughs) in response to that. I I guess I've just never heard the string of words. Indiana Jones beats a child is um, that's a very specific combination of words I've not heard before. But I, I, I but I do agree. Like when when Spielberg is really showing teeth on shit like uh, Mm. or the world's. You know, right. I don't I don't or, care or, about or anyone's or bad Munich. opinion about the ending. Right. You know, yeah, Munich. There's um, like there is dark, dark stuff in Munich. Minority Report has got some dark shit in it. He can do it. He's not he's not mean spirited, you know, so he uses that stuff liberally, I think. Or not liberally, but conservatively. Uh, I'm sure well, I, don't want, I, I don't want to assume anything, but I'm sure Steven Spielberg has never done cocaine. Like, I think there's just a rock and roll. <laughs> aspect to Stephen King that not um, even during Jaws. I bet he did. <laughs> Maybe no, he was playing video. He's playing arcade games and shit. He's, That's his cocaine. Bro. Yeah. Have you ever combined video games with Coke? It's amazing. This man was out <laughs> playing pong for four in the morning that like, I, say, yeah, I, I, I would, I have never spoken to Steven Spielberg, but I'm adding to my list of questions. Did you ever do maybe a smidge, maybe a little bump 
while you were while you were making Jaws? Because I think I think I think you were legally required to be uh, doing coke at that time, in the <laughs> especially if you were any, even tangentially involved right. in Hollywood. Yeah, if you were in the DGA that that came with uh, with your membership dues, you had to do a bump <laughs> every time. Just, you- just a pound. You get a pound of blow. <laughs> And then it's like, you can use this however you see fit, but it's got to get done by the end of your first four-year tenure in this program. So you, amazingly, I'm I'm sputtering my words here because I am still shocked that it has taken this long in the show's run for someone to actually pick the stand. It's become a running joke on the show that no one would pick the stand because it's it's such a big book. It's it's a commitment to have this conversation. I'm curious what made you pick this one besides the obvious that you just worked on it. But, you know, it was special enough for you to want to do this. Why was that? Well, because I worked on it actually made me almost not want to talk about it. But um, <laughs> just because it was, you know, it's I'm not raw from it. Actually, I had a really wonderful experience. Um, but uh, it is so of this moment. It is, I think, the most blatant case of life imitating art. Where Mm -hmm. what Stephen King wrote, however many years ago, over 40 years ago, I suppose, has really come to pass in, you know, if not in an absolute literal sense and pretty close to a literal sense. So much so that I think if somebody, if he hadn't written The Stand and somebody was thinking about, or if he was thinking about doing it now, he'd probably say, oh, no, no, no. It's like, it's too, too on the nose. Like, I've got to, I got to change it up. I got to turn this into a metaphor. I can't just like write what I'm reading in the New York Times every day. So, so I think there's a... On one hand, I'm almost hesitant to talk about it because it just is, you know, like got its finger poking on this nerve that we're all experiencing on a daily basis. And it's so terrifyingly huge. And I feel so woefully inept and, you know, not up to the task. But anyway, here we are. Um, I've stepped in it, so might as well go there. It is sort of his magnum opus. And outside of the Gunslinger books, I think that it is his Lord of the Rings and his great tome, his great American novel. Um, and in fact, I'm sure you guys know about the um, Company of the Mad podcast, which is just fabulous and oh, of course. You know, dissects the book in I don't know how many parts. You know, yeah, you they just wrap that on up. and on and on about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Like you could, you know, I don't know if that's like got to be six or eight hours of, of d- discussion about the stand. And it feels like they actually didn't, they could have kept going. Um, <laughs> right. In, in as much depth as, as one would like, but um, even though it was great. So yeah, a little bit daunting, but I think it does speak to so many things that actually resonates with me personally and in my own work, because, you know, you mentioned Cube on some level, that's a film about people having to, in the vacuum of not being in a society, having to form a society and make certain choices, moral choices that are contingent sometimes on survival and that kind of define who they become in this sort of, you know, uh, extreme situation. And, and to me, you know, at, at its core, that's where the stand resonates because I think I'm sure all of us on some level fantasize about, well, if the world ended, you know, would I survive? And what, you know, what would I do? Like how would I make it or would I be one of the first to go? And, and so I think in a way, consciously or not, when Stephen King wrote The Stand, he was playing with that notion. And and then by presenting us with this sort of array of characters who represent quite a wide spectrum of humanity, you know, we have the terror and the pleasure of watching them wend their way down this road. 
for all those reasons, we are now talking about this band. That's an interesting thematic comparison you make to uh, Cube. I wouldn't have thought about it from that angle. It's almost as though the guy that actually made Cube understands Cube more than I do, but that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not surprised to discover that. That was a great answer. I don't know what else to say. I want to touch on something you kind of threw in there, and that is the wish fulfillment aspect of the stand. Mm-hmm. For as much of a bummer as it is, and no, you know, ninety nine percent of the population of the world dies in that book. That was the first time I can remember uh, reading that, feeling that feeling that I get playing Fallout or The Last of Us or uh, you mm-hmm. want, you're reading the early Walking Dead you know, comic or watching the early episodes of that show. It's like there is an aspect of this of what would you do in this situation if you were one of the lucky survivors granted immunity by by, you know, your your DNA makeup to this thing. Would you survive? What would you do? And in your mind, you go, okay, I would go to the pharmacy, I'd get antibiotics, I'd go, you know, stock up on guns and ammo, like, you start making this weird checklist in your your mind of what you would do. And and it, there's a weird wish fulfillment aspect of that book that I don't think is talked about a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe I'm just a weirdo and, and nobody talks about it. Because nobody reads a book about billions of people dying in, you know, places themselves willingly in that daydream or whatever. So I don't know. I'm going to tell you something. It's my number one fantasy of all time. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps even more than any sexual fantasy. The idea... Well, these things are mutually exclusive. Just a minute. Uh, Well, if there's no one left to to fuck, you know, you're in big trouble. But um, I'll tell you how this works in my mind. And this I've been playing this game with myself for like most of my life. So, Eric, if you were worried about uh, feeling weird, uh, I'm about to blow that out of the water. But (laughs) my specific fantasy is that one day I wake up. And everyone is gone in the whole world. You know, they're like disappeared. There's not bodies and shit everywhere. The world is as it is. But I get to pick 10 people to come with me. And so whenever I think about this, I'm kind of, I, I kind of update my list of like, okay, who's on the guest list? You know, and it changes virtually. I mean, it, it's kind of immovable to like 70%. But then there's like three three names that are always kind of rotating, you know? So I've got like my dream team apocalypse crew nailed at any given time. This is a, this is an actual thing that I think about. I love that idea. The idea of the pure freedom of it. And of course, like 10 people aren't going to be able to say, run the infrastructure necessary to keep a town, uh, like a whole city going with electricity and water and all that shit. You know, you'd be, you'd be boned in a lot of ways, but also there's generators and things like that. And I think you could get by and build a community and you could just run around, do whatever the fuck you want. And, and usually when I've had this conversation with people, their eyes kind of light up and they're like, I, I would first thing I'm doing, I'm going to Disney world and running the rides myself. You know, like everyone has like, we're we're running around a uh, Yankee stadium and masturbating. Yeah, you could do that, you know, <laughs> if you haven't already. By the way, that's not just to be clear, that's not my fantasy. That's from the book. Yes. Okay. <laughs> just want to make that clear. I think there is something in that, the, the concept of everyone is gone, that everyone kind of responds to a little bit. And whether or not you want to admit that you think about it, I think everyone has thought about it a little bit. And it's a beautiful fantasy. And I, it's so great to hear that. And I'm sure everyone 
who's listening or a large portion of them feel the same way. People, of course, have always contemplated end of days throughout history. But, you know, once those atom bombs are dropped, whatever, 80 years or so ago, the world suddenly realized, oh, no, <laughs> this really could be the end of days. And I'm sure right, that's, right. you know, one of the ingredients that uh, inspired the stand. And, you know, we are kind of and now, again, that I think there was sort of a, a moment of relief when the Soviet Union collapsed and the Berlin Wall came down. There was a sense of, oh, you know, things are, might actually be OK. Um, but now we're we're right back to where we were, only much more intensely so because the whole planet wants us dead. I mean, nature, because we've we've done such tr- tremendous damage. So, you know, these kinds of fantasies. I think any psychologist would say, well, that's just naturally what you should be doing. That's your mind preparing you for you know potential eventualities. Hmm. And and this and the stand is kind of a playbook for that. And it, but much more than just um, uh, a fantasy of like, well, here's how you would break into the pharmacy and how you would build your shelter and so on. It's really about morality, how America is bisected into these two groups, which of course leads me to what we are now facing in a way that I wouldn't personally would never have anticipated even four years ago, this profound bifurcation within America. So that there's this other layer on the book, which is truly, this is a book about America. I mean, you could apply it to any country, but it, but it is very specific to America. And again, I think that's like Stephen King's specialty is that he just knows precise. He knows America so well and the American people so well and the culture, he knows precisely what frightens us about America. And I say that not just as a Canadian, but as also an American citizen. And, you know, he sees the beauty in it, but he also sees the underlying darkness. And, um, you know, it was interesting when I was working on the show. So just to give, sorry, context, you know, I I directed two episodes of the Stan miniseries. You know, I'm just a cog in the machine. The real authors of that are are Josh Boone, Benjamin Cavell, and, um, sorry, I'm suddenly blanking. Um, But, it's their show. So I don't want to, I don't want to take any ownership, but nonetheless, you know, when you work as a director on a show like that, you try to invest as much of yourself into it and you try to kind of open all those doors again. And I was truly struck by how precise Stephen King's dissection of populism in America is written into the pages of that book from 40 years ago and how it is now or has been played out like to the point where, you know, when we first talked about doing this podcast, which actually I think was before the election, I thought, yeah, when we do this, what world am I going to be in? Like literally, (laughs) you know, like in the time that we said, okay, let's do the stand to the time that I knew we'd actually be talking about. I thought I could be in a, a nightmare. I could literally be doing a podcast in like a nightmare future. Thank God (laughs) it didn't, go that way, although it went in some unexpected directions. So, yeah. I think so the I, police would have Eric and I locked up. I don't think we'd be doing a podcast. <laughs> you know. We just have to come to Canada. They would have been like uh, one of the uh, cyberbullying the president on Twitter for fucking four years. Straight <laughs> the chair. Like, but I know what you mean, yeah. You're right in, in how he... And I don't think he's Nostradamus. He just can read people. It's it's so funny. I reread um, the Dead Zone for an episode months and months ago, and that was in the the height of 
Magamania, right? And it was, uh, you know, reading Stilson. Magamania I've ever heard of. <laughs> but Stilson, like, it wasn't the, oh, this is a bad guy who would, would have been a bad president. It wasn't even that aspect. It was the way he was able to speak to the blue collar people, the way that, that he was so blatantly two faced to so many people, but other people couldn't see it. You know, all this stuff, he, he, you're, you're right in how he can read populism. And he knew how to how to use imagery like Stilson has his slogan printed on a hard hat. You know, it's not a red MAGA cap, but it's not all that far removed from it. I think King understands how people can have the wool pulled over their eyes. And he can all, he also understands how um, people can embrace that, you know, and, and how other people can fight against it. He knows people. Yeah, no, I think Randall flag is a rock and roll leader. And Donald Trump, who I find completely repulsive on every level, but is a a rock star. Like that guy got to where he is because he behaved like a rock star. He knew what the crowd wanted and he he gave it to them. You know, there's a lot of differences between Randall Flagg and and Donald Trump. But but I think that is like where they really share some um, commonality. And uh, and it was I mean, when I was prepping for my segment, because it's a there's a big long speech that leads up to the hand of God sequence. Um, and I, I looked at magma rallies as reference to direct those scenes. That section of the, of the book was always one of my favorites because you start seeing even at being the, I'm the good guy reading this, or I'm the liberal guy, progressive guy reading this. You still are, you've spent hundreds of pages getting to know everybody in Boulder and you love people in Boulder and everybody in Vegas is evil and wrong. Right. And then when you get there, or the characters get there, like, you know, Glenn's like, these guys are us. You know, it's like these guys aren't all that far removed from what we are. And vice and the people in Vegas see them and go, these are the people we've been scared about, scared of, you know, and, and Glenn has a great moment in the book. It, it's done differently in the series. But in the book, he has that great moment where he sees Randall Flagg for the first time and he just laughs. And he's like, this is uh, all the fear. You know, all the fear that we've had in our, you know, in building this, this guy up and this, this is it. It's like, he's only powerful because you're making him powerful. You know, <laughs> this man has a it's, jean it's, jacket it's, on for God's sake. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, he's kind of ridiculous in his own ways. I think that's part of the, the, the weird dissonance that came from the, you know, Trump's was just that they, they seem so idiotic, the whole family, they seem so idiotic that you can't imagine them actually causing any real harm. But I think that's partly what made them so dangerous. Well, it's, you know, uh, to go back to something you said a moment ago, it's it's sort of that Donald Trump represented a person who could reflect the worst impulses of a certain segment of the population and show them that they could be successful, quote unquote. You know, he's a many times over bankrupted fucking casino owner slash reality show host. So let's not give him too much credit, but you, you could at least get elected president on the back of not only indulging in those impulses, but saying, I don't give a fuck that people are mad about it, you know, and that rallied a crowd around him. And then the real danger with that, especially in this day and age is, you know, social media, the internet, it's these people have always existed, but now we're in an area where they can organize much easier on a national scale. And that's legitimately terrifying. 
the stands version of this is like these people are being drawn in by dreams and then they're heading to Vegas. Right. But in our world, sort of the version of that is like, they're all on fucking Twitter or parlor or something. And they yeah. are drawn to say, I don't know, the U S Capitol building. The dreams are electronic now. Exactly. Very well put. Oh no, you put so it taking away flags, very good point. flags, brain, Twitter. It yeah. works. It does. Doesn't it seem peaceful now? Like, Aren't you like considerably more relaxed on a daily basis because you don't have to hear from that guy? Well, yes, it's incredible. But, but also, uh, there's a lot of fucking work to be done. You know what I mean? Like the rot at the center of this, this thing is not gone. We know those people are still out there. We saw what happened last month at the Capitol. We've seen the the violence that these people can do, and it's it's sort of a proud ignorance. You know, a refusal to believe in reality. You can't argue with people like that. I don't think I'll ever be calm again. <laughs> you know, like the last four years have been all about showing me that this country, I like I, I took a very privileged look at what my life was like in this country up until up until the point that Donald Trump was elected, more or less. And especially after eight years of Obama, I took the very privileged attitude of, you know, we elected a black guy. We love this black guy, you know, and Obama, certainly uh, not without his own faults, but we embrace that sort of uh, synthesized hope. And I think we allowed it, or at least me, I allowed it to fool myself into thinking that we were making progress. And the last four years have shown me that we have not only have we not made nearly as progress, as much progress as I thought we had, but. In fact, I think we've set it back by however many decades. Yeah, I like that he's not on Twitter anymore. I like that half the tweets in my feed are not him like, you know, getting windmill dunked on by people that are, you know, just clowning him. Although as as fun as that was, it was still causing a lot of problems. I don't think I'll ever be calm again. Not truly. Not like I was back in, say, 2012. I'm living with this knowledge now. I hesitate to go further down this road because we're we're just, you know, we're way off topic here at this point. But I feel like I've been enlightened in a way that I really needed to be enlightened. And in the process, I can be a better ally to people, frankly. But I think, you, I think you know, to kind of swing it back to the book, I think that's sort of where the book takes us. Sure. You know, and I 100% agree with everything you're saying. And I have the same feeling. And I... You know, I mean, when I saw the mob attacking the Capitol, to me, it was I, I really thought I was watching a science fiction horror film. Like it looked like Escape from New York. Yeah. And in a literal, <laughs> literal way, it's a little bit dumber, but basically, yes. um, you know, felt like we were it, that also happened to be my birthday, which made it extra weird. But um, oh, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> anyway, it was a, such a strange day. But uh, uh, but to bring it back to the book, I think. At the end of the book, Randall Flagg exists to destroy the country, but also to kind of bring it together again. Now, admittedly, the hand of God comes in to help out. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, these, these figures do expose the darkness in all of us. But hopefully in, in that darkness being exposed, it allows us to then destroy it and heal. And then and, and the book, I think, doesn't make as strong a statement that, as that. And it, you know, it ends with Stu and Franny saying, basically coming to, coming to the conclusion that maybe people will never change or not knowing if they can change, um, but hoping for the future. And so, yeah, I think in, in, in that respect, the book has also sort of 
predicted, you know, where we're heading in the next little while. They do make a big deal of the fact that Flag starts losing people before. And I would, that would be a fascinating short story if King ever wanted to dip into this is going into the mind of somebody who kind of woke up, you know, in Vegas and, and left before the nuke went off because they talk about how Boulder starts getting an influx of new people post bomb. And, and uh, the inference is that a lot of those were people who used to be Vegas people and, and left. So, you know, I, I don't know. There, there is a little bit of hope for humanity there of like people changing their ways, realizing they made a mistake. Uh, the last four or so years haven't really held up that uh, that's going to happen on a large scale, I think for in American politics, but uh you know, but I don't know. There's, there's always, there's always hope. You know, I, I don't know. I like, I like to be a little bit optimistic, and especially when I, you know, see how so many people, you know, rallied this election cycle to kind of beat impossible odds, and a lot of apathy was put away. That's it, because I'm apathetic. <laughs> yeah. But, but the last four years, I mean, maybe less and less so as I got older. But the last four years, I'm anything but apathetic. Right. And, and it, you know, it kind of, it took this event, like the election of this man to really wake me up and like slap me in the face. And, um, and I That's actually think, yeah. well, it wasn't very pleasant, <laughs> you know, it, it's probably a good thing. It is. It, it will be ultimately a good thing. I think for a lot of people, I mean, definitely not a good thing for most people, but for people that, it, that were complacent and thinking along those lines, I think there is, it's it's definitely not a net positive, but there is there is something being gained there. We understand now that things are far worse than we thought. There is value in that because now you know like what you're really really up against. And you know, the stand you know, they make it pretty clear. Like if you're a character in the stand, you're getting these epi- you know, you're getting these dreams where you can go one way or the other and they're they're pretty clear. You know, you know what you're you're signing up for in one of these areas. Although I will say, I, I've always kind of found it weird that Flag draws the line at like drug addicts. It is like, interesting, they, isn't it? They, they yeah, it, it really is. Like they can drink out there. They can they can do whatever they want, more or less, as long as they're you know keeping the lights turning on and off on time. But <laughs> but drug addicts are like persona non grata, and I think that there's something very interesting going on in the psychology of that idea with Stephen King. You know, well, he was an alcoholic right. drug addict. So, so what, what caused him to demarcate one is unforgivable with this guy of all people, rather than alcoholism. Say. It's so interesting because like, that is precisely a conversation we were have when, having when we were preparing the series. You're being more insightful than I am because I, I didn't think about Stephen King specifically, but I took it to mean that while, you know, drinking is allowed and a certain amount of debauchery is allowed, Flag is basically, he's also selling safety. And, you know, he's, he's saying, I, just like Donald Trump did, I'm law and order, you know, I am delivering order. And, and maybe that's what the line that is being drawn is, well, you can drink, but if you're a drug addict, you're out of line. And I'm going to make sure. And of course, I'm sure that doesn't apply to the people that he wants to make exceptions for. And but to the general raises, populace, it's, it's saying I'm I'm the man in charge. And it raises the question of like, is weed, does weed count here? You know, you can't be like, 
a, a, a junkie is not the same as someone who smokes weed every day. You know, there is a there is a physical reaction going on in the body of someone who's addicted to heroin versus someone who just wants to get high every day. I, I know this. I know this for a fact. I know this firsthand. Maybe the decision was made because, you know, maybe this is a time and place thing. Maybe that's uh, well, booze was legal at the time. You know, we're mm-hmm. not prohibitionists. So but everything else is I'd be curious to see what I, I guess what I'm getting to is I'd be curious to see uh, flags lists of drugs that are cool. <laughs> and, and that are, you know, it, like what about prescription drugs? I feel like that flag would have been the kind of guy that if somebody in Vegas got drunk and fucking ran somebody over, that dude would have been crucified too. you know, that because anything that fractures his, the illusion of control that he has is damaging to, to his power. And so I I think more than any, I don't think he's sitting around going, you know, I hate heroin and, you know, more than anything, you know, my Mrs. Flag OD'd on heroin, you know, like he's not, I don't think he has a personal grudge. I think it's all about power for him. It's all about the Mm -hmm. control he has over people. And the more examples he can make, the more his followers are afraid of him. And the more they're afraid of him, the more power they give him. I hear you. And 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 I align with Vincenzo's take here that it's about the illusion of control. Like maybe who's someone who's having too too many drinks after work is more controllable than you know a heroin addict who wakes up every day and that's their number one priority over all other things. Like I can I can see the difference between those two things. I don't know. It's interesting to think about. It's a huge world that he created. Honestly, that miniseries could have been twice as many episodes, as far as I'm concerned. It just there's so much to explore, and the book is so layered and. Obviously, there's so many characters, and each one is given this, you know, incredible story. Like before they even really sometimes step into the main narrative, you know, we're getting this incredible backstory for virtually everyone. It's a whole universe. He also plays with point of view in a way in this book that I I absolutely love because there's a dozen main characters. This is a true ensemble piece. This isn't. Fran Goldsmith's story. This isn't holy. This isn't Stu Redman's story. Holy, you know, for a long period of time, uh, Nick Andros is the main character and, and the one being brought up to be the leader, you know, of the, of the, the group. And Nick doesn't make it, you know, <laughs> make it to the finale. And it, it's such an interesting thing that just keeps that grounds the story to me. There's something about the stand that that rings true beyond just the political parallels or the fact that if you read it now, you're you're reading him predicting our pandemic and how people are reacting to it. You know, there's more to it there. And I think a lot of it is just in the fact that, you know, you could be the the purest good person. And, you know, sometimes life won't reward you for it. Yeah, no, it's so devastating when Nick dies and. I mean, his story is the one that touches me the most, you know, the whole encounter with those guys in the bar and then going to jail with and then having to care for them when they get sick. And I mean, it is it is, I'm sure, you know, deeply biblically influenced piece for him. I mean, it feels very, very Christian. Oh, yeah, very much. And and Nick is the most Jesus like character out of everybody. Yeah, exactly. You know. That actually raises a question I have for you about one of the episodes of the show you directed. 
I guess we can say this because at this point, I, well, I'll put a spoiler alert on it, but if you've been following the show, you've already seen this episode. What is up with the decision to not have them being crucified? Why are they in a pool versus on the crucifixes? Because um, in the moment, I'm like, this feels like them trying to strip out some of the religion of this, but also there's crucifixes in the show. So I think I can tell you why. I wasn't part of that decision-making process, but I think it's because the location that we were shooting in had a pool, (laughs) which is honestly sometimes how these things work because it was a centerpiece. (laughs) The casino was, um, by the way, it's all shot in Vancouver and it was this crazy, we called it the pink palace. It was this crazy Uh hotel that apparently was frequented by Quebecois mafia for years and had fallen into disrepair and the production had got a hold of it and basically dressed it into a casino, did an amazing job. And in its center, in the center of this atrium, it was a very weird place, was this pool. And I think I'm just guessing here, but um, that uh, Benjamin, and I'm so sorry, I forgot T- Taylor Elmore. Taylor, yeah. Yes, Taylor, was yeah. Loved the, uh, you guys have interviewed Benjamin and Taylor, just so yeah, wonderful, yeah. lovely, lovely guys. I, I just uh, had a little brain hiccup there, but uh, anyway, that Ben and Taylor probably, or Aaron, who is the production designer, probably saw that and said, well, this is, you know, naturally the point of focus for that huge Coliseum-like atrium. So let's just drown them. I, I'm willing to bet that that was the impetus behind it, but I don't know 100%. And, but I don't think, yeah, it, it certainly it, wasn't to shy away from religious imagery. I'm, I'm, I don't think that it was. Yeah, I mean, there's a hand no of God. afraid of a crucifix. You know, so, it, but totally. it, the, the only thing I could think of was, they didn't want to see these like it didn't it doesn't make sense like it didn't make sense and that's why i asked basically but like i knew that theory didn't hold water but i was curious um and also i I imagine if you propped up two neon crosses at the on either side of a pool that would look pretty ridiculous that's like you're you're on vacation but also getting crucified that would just look goofy (laughs) i am fascinated by adaptation by the way i'm just always you know, to me, like um, The Shining, now I'm going really off topic, but The Shining is such an interesting case of adaptation. And people talk about it endlessly, of course, because Stephen King famously doesn't like the Stanley Kubrick film. And it is quite different in many respects. And yet, I feel like the two kind of circle around to the same place, even though it's so different in so many details um, and, and in some larger ways, too. And uh, so it's always interesting to me how decisions do get made and how these things evolve. And I think there's probably a perception that when you're doing a movie or a TV show, you know, these things are very carefully planned and put together. And to some extent, that is true. Like I know Josh worked for five years trying to get this thing off the ground before it got made. And yet when you show somebody says, oh, by the way, you can't we can't afford to shoot in Las Vegas (laughs) or we can't shoot here or there. You're going to Vancouver. Things evolve. And, and, and the adaptation process evolves around this thing, sometimes for better, sometimes not. But um, I'm pretty sure that's what that was all about. Interesting. What's interesting about adaptations isn't just in the people who adapt it themselves. It is how people view them, how the audience views them. Uh, because so many people want different things out of different stories it you know you talk to some people like comic book fans you know they want the comic book that they read to look exactly like you know what's what's on the screen you talk to some people and they just want a character to be done right you know for for me an adaptation is always about tone 
It's like, do I get the same feeling watching this as I did reading something I love? I I mean, listen, I I will be the first to complain if somebody gets a character wrong, you know, but, uh, but I'll also be the first person to let them try something new as long as it feels right. But how do you define what the feels right is to, to everybody? I mean, you just can't. And it changes Um, over time too. You know, you find that's the other thing I've been around long enough. I've seen, so I don't really pay attention to reviews anymore because I've had enough experiences where something was of mine was badly reviewed, viciously reviewed. And then years later was praised. I'm like, well, that was pointless. (laughs) You know, to suffer suffer over it because not that anyone was wrong at the time, but it's just that the world changes and our our cultural perception of things change drastically. I mean, actually rereading the book as I prepare to do the miniseries, you know, you see, well, some things didn't age so well, you know, and it's not any fault of Stephen King's. It's just he lived that was written 40 years ago. It was a different time. King will be the first to admit that he's had some issues writing black characters. He's had some issues writing women. And I found a quote where he was doing an interview with Playboy and he was kind of pressed on a very specific uh, criticism from somebody named Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough, who, you know, asserted that he doesn't write believable women. And he brought up the stand saying that, yes, unfortunately, I think it's probably the most justifiable of all the criticisms leveled at me. Uh, in fact, I'd extend a criticism to include my handling of black characters, both Halloran, the cook in the shining and mother Abigail in the stand are cardboard characters of super black heroes viewed through the rose tinted glasses of a white liberal guilt is, is how he put it. Mm-hmm. Um, this isn't him looking back 20, 30 years later. This is him at the time. This interview is from 1983. Oh, wow. So it's like he, he, he could, he could, acknowledge that well you know also you know listening to in the company of the mad podcast they've had many people of color as guests on that show um or little and co-host of that show no less who still said that they found power in in what he viewed as a caricature I, i don't know there's just something great about king's willingness to view his weaknesses and uh he he seems like a really good guy i mean i've never met him but everything that I know Joe a little bit, um, who's a lovely, lovely person. So that's something. And then everything he says, you know, that he's so grounded. Like, I actually feel like he's become this kind of um, important voice, uh, you know, while things are sort of crumbling around us. It's it's odd. But I, I see, like, you know, major newspapers quoting him all the time as if he's like a political commentator. And, right. You know, it's, I think he's, he's done a lot of good. Like, a really... Um, I'm impressed by him. So you mentioned reading the stand before shooting. The the process has got to be so different attacking a short story. You can read in one sitting and something is as, you know, almost biblical as in length as the stand, (laughs) you know, like it, 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 there's one there's one part of it that's I'm adapting a story and then there's another part of it that you almost have this wealth of knowledge it, it, the standards like the Silmarillion of you know of uh, of adapting right it just has to be all, all these if you're making that story there's just so much depth you know yeah. like it, you ever have a question about a character it's in the text somewhere totally well I mean you know my attitude about television I mean I even hate using the word TV because I feel like everything's just becoming, you know, visual narrative. Everything's just going to streaming. So it kind of, some degree, almost doesn't matter what it is. With something like 
the stand where I'm a hired gun, where I'm truly just somebody came to me and said, you know, would you like to do this? And I said, yes, please. But I'm not in control of it. Like I don't have final cut or anything like that. I still try to invest as much of myself in it as I can. Like I always think of it being like a comic book artist, you know, the way certain comic book artists would come onto a book. And even if the writer didn't change, the artist always brought something very, very specific and personal if they were good. Um, like John Byrne doing X-Men or something always made a strong impression on me. And so I feel like that's, that has been my mantra when I do TV is I'm going to go in and make this as if it's my own film, but know that it's not. And that uh, like, I'll put as much passion into it as one of my own films, but I know that at the end of the day, it's not mine. Like I don't take ownership over it and someone will, I will hand over the baby. And that's, and there's something weirdly calming calming and artistically freeing about it. Like I'm freed from the tyranny of my own self or my own, like my own sort of obsessions or weaknesses or whatever. Um, Because most of the thing, my movies, you know, I've written or co-written. So something like the stand, it's kind of thrilling to be airdropped into that thing. I mean, I didn't have anything to do with the casting. Like, I think it's really, you know, it's Josh, Josh's and Ben, Ben's and, Taylor's show, obviously. And I think it started from what I understand, it really started with Josh and he brought a lot of the, that wonderful, wonderful cast onto it. Um, So I'm just kind of picking up the baton and running to the next person, you know, and handing it over. But I have the pleasure of being airdropped into a situation, something that's already been engineered for me. So, so much of the heavy lifting has already been taken care of by other people. And, and I do my best to enhance what's there if I see something that's not working well, try to make it a little better. If something is working well, try to stay the course. But the stand, yeah, stand was interesting, like unique because it is, because in addition to the script, I would still read the book. Like I would re, I would reread the chapters in the book that I was filming. And my, my episodes are quite um, faithful to the book. Episode seven and eight are the latter part of the book. And they're, you know, barring details, um, did you know the did you know the production team behind this one before you came on? Like let me come at it from a different angle. How did you get invited on and what was your reaction when you got the the invite? I literally got a call from Josh and Ben. I mean, I was mm-hmm. I was told by my representatives that they would be calling, but that's how it happened. And they were so sweet and inviting and like you know, and then and then it was the stand. So I, I just wanted to read uh, a couple scripts, and uh, I thought they were great. And so I signed on, and it was that simple. And I was so happy I did it too, because um, first of all, it was a lovely team. Like it was such, it was so much fun working on that show. It was really, and there was real money behind the show. I've never had resources like that on anything I've ever really. Done. I mean, it was. Your budget oh, yeah. on these were higher than you've ever had on anything? Oh, yeah. Unquestioned. I don't know. Now, to be, tell the truth, I don't know exactly what the numbers are, but yeah. I guess I mean, that tracks, but it still sounds it still sounds crazy. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, Industrial Light and Magic did the visual effects. Like, we're talking top drawer. It, and, and that cast, right? Like, that's an yeah. incredible cast. So, uh, what did yeah, you, it was. What did you spend on Splice? That was 20, I'm trying to remember now. That was 26 million. It looks like double that. Oh, you're very sweet. That's a very sleek, gorgeous movie. 
you know, so I, that was the first thing I thought of was, yeah, no, this, Hannibal, this was, I would also expect had a, had a budget attached to it. Hannibal is low budget. Hannibal is 3 million an episode. What? Yeah. I had eight, you had eight days to shoot an episode. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I know. I don't know how we, I mean, people lost their what? minds doing it. Yeah. People went crazy because it was so hard, but that thing looked like a moving painting. That is incredible. But you learn, you know what you learn is that so much of what makes something look great is just taste. So Brian Fuller, who ran Hannibal, is kind of a genius and also not a great, just a great writer, but like a great visualist and has such astounding taste. And I think that, and the people he hired did too. So I think that's, that's why. I, I still don't know how they did it. I mean, uh, maybe the third season, they broke the bank a little. I don't know. But uh, yeah, like I had eight, I remember on Hannibal, I had eight days. That was it, man. That is that is truly wild. And Brian, this, Brian oh, sort of become a friend over the course of doing this show because he's come on a few times, and he's blown our minds, you know, and the minds of our listeners with his takes on specific King properties. But like, just in cat, like I've gotten to know the guy in the process, and just talking with him in casual conversation, he'll just he'll just casually rewire your brain while you're talking <laughs> to him. He's one of the most intelligent people I think I've ever spoken to regularly. He's like casually rattling off like, well, I thought I would do this or like, well, here's an idea for that or whatever. And you're like, Jesus Christ, like, what is going on in your brain? That guy is endlessly brilliant. I've had the great fortune to encounter a few people like that in my life. Like, And also Brian's a very lovely person and a very interesting person. And um, yeah, I've had, you know, Guillermo del Toro's one and... William Gibson's another and Terry Gilliam, like these are very special people. They are unicorns, all of them. And they all suffer. <laughs> they suffer yeah. for it, for their specialness. No, yeah. Uh, the world is not always kind to people like that. But all those guys, you know, they've got a vision. They stick to it. They stick to their guns too. You know, they'll walk away from a thing if it ain't working out. It's inspiring on a creative level. And the good news is... Uh, we are sort of living in a, an environment where there is a arms race between these different streaming platforms. Yes. And money is being spent in a way that I, has never been spent before and will never be spent again to do things that are foolish in a good. And I mean that in a, in a good way, like the stand, even the stand, you know, which you think, oh, well, that's got to be a surefire thing. And, you know, how hard was that to get going? It took Josh five years to get it to that point. And other people have been working on it for you know decades prior. I'm one of what, the incarnation of the stand that I just wish to God I could see. I wish I could like travel to a parallel universe and see is, is the George Romero one. Oh yeah. I can't imagine like Romero at like his day of the dead height, but with a budget to make the stand. He's the perfect guy to have done it too, you know, because all the themes are things that he's obsessed with and was obsessed with. And um, yeah, I would love to have seen that. But now we're living in this special time, like where something like The Stand, I know there's been some mixed response to it, but believe me, this show was done by people who were passionate about the book and and not just filmmakers, not just the actors, but like the gaffer and the grips and like literally everybody on the set was really dedicated to making this right. everything it could be. And, and the studio was too, like they, as I say, they really put a lot into it and they supported everyone and it's a special moment. Like I think um, I know it's a miserable time to be alive <laughs> politically and socially right now, but you know, in terms of the stuff that's out there, it's, it's kind of incredible. 
I mean, you can't, certainly you can't symptomatic of the, the streaming industry on, on like a small level and a big level. Like you'd never see like uh, Tim Robbins. I think you should leave on a network. It would just never, ever fucking happen. People give streaming services a lot of shit, but they're taking those chances. And I, I think that stuff is very valuable. Not only is it giving people jobs, but we're also getting, you know, these visions from from people that we absolutely would not be getting otherwise. I think you should leave is definitely one of them. It's like a two year old example. That, that's like my go to example where yeah. under no circumstances would that show have been made if Netflix wasn't just handing out money like fucking Tic Tacs to every every person that came in there and pitched. You know, they need that constant content stream. And. I don't know. In my experience with these streaming networks, it's like, I don't know. It's like 60% miss, 40% hit, maybe even less, you know, especially when movies get involved. But man, it's a good time to be a creative for sure. Well, and, and that ratio has been true of all time. And you look at the golden age of cinema for every French connection and exorcist in 70 in the seventies, there's a dozen movies that they that were made that you don't ever hear about that never made it to dvd yeah and like the same system put out both things it's just you know with streaming we're in the middle of it and we have access to everything at, at one time so we see every miss so is there anything that we want to touch on specifically about um about the book or or anything before we we wrap up because i mean listen we're never going to be able to to pull off an episode of the stand uh here that's uh anywhere near what the guys at the in the company the mad eight hour long well (laughs) exactly because they're they're two minutes into this thing i'm like we're never this is we haven't even done the plot synopsis yet like it's no so fucking complicated uh yeah i mean the way to do it is the way we have more than one episode on this i think Oh, of oh, yeah. not with me, but with many people. So for sure. Well, yeah. no, you know, we we repeat titles and and guests bring different things to the table. This is your specific version of that. You know, that's what's fun about doing repeat titles. But uh, we barely fucking scratch the surface of this thing. We didn't yeah. even talk about Captain Trips, by the way. <laughs> no, we named about yeah. three characters during this thing. You know, right. And the stand has like four dozen characters. There's no way you could encapsulate this in here. Well, here's a good question. There's no way you could encapsulate a, like a full formed conversation about this within an hour. I don't think you could do it in two hours. Uh, Mike and company with their their stand podcast spent hours and hours going over it. And I bet every single person involved with that is like, I wish we had had six more hours. So do you think there's any reality where a a real version of the stand could exist, like something that would live up to everyone's expectations, that would deliver on all the characters, that would capture every nuance of the novel? I can't I, I really cannot imagine such a thing. You know, you would almost have a have to have a whole network devoted to the stand, <laughs> you know, in order to fucking do it right. Which is not to say anything uh, negative about the version you just worked on or McGarris's version. But do you think there's a point where a novel can be too big, where it's just foolhardy to attempt it? That's a fascinating question. Um, probably yes, but I think it's not about length. I think it's about the what a novel delivers that a movie can't. And that is that internal monologue, sure. that kind of, you know, internal intimacy that is, and some, 
you know, and some novels don't really um, follow a, a narrative path. And, and movies generally by nature live and breathe off of narrative. So I think there is a version of The Stand that could be done that would definitely benefit from just more time. And that isn't what this one is. But yeah, I could see some in some future time there being another one that is five times as long. Why not? You know, and it, it, and it would probably benefit from it because the, the material is, is so deeply rich. But would it ever accomplish what the book does? I tend to think not because I think the strength of the book is so specifically King's voice, just the way he charms and seduces the reader with that voice. It would be even Stanley Kubrick couldn't do it. Like, you know, you would have to be the greatest filmmaker of all time to conjure the cinematic filmic equivalent of that. Well, I mean, even the best movies that have been adapted from stuff are almost to the movie adapting a a mediocre book with a great premise and doing it well. That's the Jaws effect. That's the Godfather effect Mm -hmm. where you go back and you read those books. They're, they're just forgettable kind of pulpy bullshit actually at least in with jaws a godfather i, I wouldn't yeah, i wouldn't that on but uh great. No, come on no. I, the, the book but the book is nothing compared to the movie though it, it's i i mean listen it's been it's been many years since i i read uh, puzo's godfather but like the movie is a whole different beast uh jaws i can confidently say you know as somebody who's been obsessed with jaws their whole life uh, that that book is uh, is so sub what the movie is that it's not even funny, but yeah, I mean even the best movies that that have come out, there's still going to be, you know, the the misery is amazing. Is Stand by Me or are incredible? Shawshank Redemption is you know is an incredible film. Uh, it's still never going to fully deliver what you get when you read those those stories. You know, sure. Uh, that's a, that's always going to be a different the different thing. Yeah. Although I'll give you this on The Godfather. Um, my ideal version of The Godfather also contains the subplot where Sonny Corleone's dick is too big. Like that's a, that's <laughs> right. a subplot in the book, you know, and it is, it is quite frankly, pretty hilarious. So um, <laughs> if anyone ever works up the balls to, to remake The Godfather, get that Sonny Corleone in action. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like I, I need to know what's going on with this. Let's quickly talk about Bernie Wrightson. Oh yeah. <laughs> I might throw a curve. I'd love in. to. Yes. Only because, you know, yes, it's hard to even like scratch the surface of the text, but um, you know, Bernie Wrightson did these beautiful illustrations for I mm-hmm. think it was for the nineteen ninety edition yes. of the stand. And I forever will link Bernie Wrightson with Stephen King because of Creep Show and because of um Cycle of the Werewolf. And yeah. I feel like People don't talk about that relationship enough because he seemed, I know there are other illustrators and some really great painters and so on that, that did similar things with Stephen King, but I don't think anyone had the kind of synergy with him and illustrated his work in that way that just like both King and Bernie Wrightson were deeply influenced by EC comics, unquestionably. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of see that Bernie Wrightson really brings that EC element out of King's text in such a beautiful, but, you know, really sophisticated and incredibly technically mind-blowing way. That was one of the first things I noticed when I started watching the uh, CBS All Access series was that the bodies with the tuberculosis throat, the bloating, the sweatiness, you know, you look at Bernie's, I don't know, 
Bernie Wrightson, so I shouldn't be calling him Bernie. If you if you look at Wrightson's illustrations, they're just like, you know, your eye glances off of them because they're just so repulsive. And they really match that in the stand with the with the dead bodies. Those things are grotesque to to look at. And so I, I that's one of the things I really appreciated about the uh, the new series. Yeah, I think they really went to great lengths to do that. Oh, they went to town on that shit. Their their corpse budget must have been out of control. Yeah, those things ain't cheap. You think dead bodies would be nothing, but no, believe me, they have a price tag. What's your What's your favorite of the the rights and stuff? I it, to me, it's the first one that I saw, and I think the first one I saw was Cycle Cycle of the Werewolf. That that that's the one where if you say Bernie Wrights and Stephen King, my mind goes to the the ripped open cheek and the werewolf reaching through the yep, the window. Oh, you know, there's no top that's in that image. The weight of the paw on the guy's face, you can feel it, which is not oh, easy okay. to do. That that sounds like a thing that would be easy to do. But no, like you look at that image and you can feel the the bluntness of the paw, just this like slapped against a guy's face. And then the claws digging in and then him just dragging his own face off his head. Come on. <laughs> that's amazing. Like that's a, that's a hard thing to capture. No one draws werewolves like Bernie Wrightson. True. But I, I'm, you know, uh, Creepshow is very important to me. Yeah. So, uh, you know, he did a, a famously did this uh, comic book version of based on the Creepshow movie. I think it was released simultaneous to the film that Stephen King wrote. And um, it's it was just a thing of beauty. The way Bernie Wrightson draws pained, twisted hands is uh-huh. just a thing of beauty to me. I can just look at and his corpses. hands forever. Yeah. And of course, his he's, he's great at corpses. Oh, he's, he's magnificent. He's, uh, <laughs> he was such as, I mean, I never met him of course, but such a special, brilliant artist. And, you know, it's, it's nice when there's a writer who finds somebody who illustrates his work that way. Like, I think that's, yeah. you know, I think about when I think of Edgar Allan Poe, I think of Arthur Rackham, like Arthur Rackham did these amazing, beautiful paintings for tales of mystery and imagination. It's a similar kind of thing with Bernie Wrightson. Well, oh. Does that bring us to the end of The Stand, episode one of 1500? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh let's, oh, let's quickly, let's uh, just throw out um, a hello and a thanks to Mick Garris for making a great first version of The Stand. Yes. I think there's some really um, good filmmaking in it. Yeah, no, in, in that, that opening, yeah, the open, yeah with uh, the Don't Fear the Reaper. and Yeah. yeah. Totally. And when you think about like what kind of schedule they must have had and what the standards were in those days for TV, I mean, it's, it's really impressive. Uh, So this is usually the point in our show where we uh, allow our guests to tease whatever they've got coming up next. Uh, Vincenzo, are you prepared to announce the new season of Hannibal or do you want to? (laughs) Oh, I wish I could. Uh, (laughs) No, I actually just spoke to Brian yesterday and, He's oh, yeah. definitely working on some interesting things, which I'm yeah, not permitted to disclose, but uh, you probably know. Well, I'm right now I'm prepping a series for Amazon based on a William Gibson novel called The Peripheral, um, which mm-hmm. is being done with um, Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy. Oh, shit. Westworld. And um, yeah, been working on they're that doing for- Fallout, too, aren't they? What they're doing, they're doing more than I even know about, I think. Um, I don't know how they're juggling all these things, but uh We've been working on that for about five years. So that's now finally going to cameras in May. And uh, and, uh, and I have some quirky, weird things I've been doing during the pandemic. I 
I did a graphic novel. I illustrated and wrote a graphic novel. So I'm hopefully going to find some to get, I'm going to get that, that out there somehow. I don't know if I'll find a publisher or not. And I recorded an album of music, which I'm almost ashamed to say, because I really have no idea what I was doing, but uh, it was incredibly fun to do. Album, right? This is my, oh yeah, this is like total, I'm going total yeah. ABBA. And uh, I saw those pictures of you the other day in a belly. <laughs> That would not be fire in a club. And I was like, oh shit, that album's going to drop soon. No, no, nothing Stephen King ever wrote is as horrific as that image you just conjured. But um, <laughs> so when Vincenzo becomes the new Carly Rae Jepsen, uh, you can say you heard it first here on the King cast and yet another King cast exclusive. Well, thanks so much for, for coming in, man. Uh, yeah, was, oh, this is a blast. A uh, this was great. And please come back. No, thank you guys so much. I love it. You know, I could talk about this stuff forever. So it's totally. such a delight. And you guys are so erudite and smart and fun to listen to. Oh, let's not. Let's go not, on. Let's not get, <laughs> go on. That's true. My it's so true. I was like, let's not get hysterical. But uh, there's a reason e- EW doesn't mess around, man. <laughs> you know, that's right. Come, come back. Number three best podcast of 2020, baby. Come listen back. to it right now. Come back next time with maybe a book that isn't 1,200 pages long, and we'll actually yeah. have a complete discussion. And oh, I'd love, love to do that. <laughs> but we, we thank you for kicking off our what is sure to be a, a series of stand episodes, and of course you are, are welcome back anytime. Thank you so much. Many thanks to Vincenzo Natali for joining us for what will for sure be the first of many episodes uh, of The Stand that we do over the life of this podcast. Yeah, that one, uh, maybe this is why people uh, have such a hard time adapting it. It's hard adapting it into conversation, for God's sakes. Right. We've mentioned it a couple of times during the show, but there's uh, a great stand-focused podcast that our longtime friend of the show, Mike Flanagan, is a part of, and Anthony Bresnikin, and Mm -hmm. and a bunch of really cool people uh, called In the Company of the Mad which uh, goes, it's more of a book club style thing where they go like 200 pages at a time through the book. Uh, and they can be a lot more focused. And so we just have to figure out a way to <laughs> to to talk about it without ripping off their uh, structure. In my mind, I'm thinking, well, anytime someone brings up the stand as a choice, we just got to find out what their angle is, you know, and right. it's going to have to be specific to them. So we might end up with half a dozen stand episodes by the time this is all said and done. But uh, you'll be hearing about it from all kinds of different angles. So. Yeah, like Bar- Barack Obama is a huge fan of Nick Andros, so his episode <laughs> when he finally comes on the show can can be focused solely on Nick and what he brings to the table. Easily gotten. I'm sure we can get him. <laughs> so, Scott, next week uh, is an important week. Do you know why? Why is Oh, next week? I know why. I am so excited for this episode. Not just that. It's also my birthday week. So oh, that's right. Which day specifically yeah. is your birthday? February 15th, baby, day after Valentine's Day. All right, everyone make a note of that and say happy birthday to Eric on on Twitter on on the 15th, or you will be fired from the show. No excuses, no exceptions. Not the the listeners. They want to be clear that Eric will be fired from the show if you do not say happy birthday to him. It's a real weird thing in our contract with Fango, but uh, that's just how it works. (laughs) Well, since it was my birthday, uh, I very much was hoping to make next week uh, special. I want to give everybody gifts. It's a big birthday for me. It's the big four O. I'm turning forty next week, and so I figured if you know if I wanted to feel old, the best way to possibly do that is to look at one of my all time favorite Stephen King books, which is all about aging and looking back, and that is Stephen King's 
It. Finally. Two big boys in a row. The Stand and It. And Firestarter before all that. This month has been big for major titles. Uh, For anyone who's a bigger fan of the niche episodes, don't worry. We got a few of those on route. We knew that we wanted to have a really good guest with this, and I think we kind of nailed it. We have an Oscar-nominated writer joining us uh, who has a very keen insight into the psychology behind many of the characters. So the conversation will be looking a lot at the book and a lot at the 90s miniseries. That's, mm-hmm. uh, we, we talk a little bit about the Muschietti films, of course, you can't not, but the main focus is on the book in the 90s miniseries. So that will be next Wednesday. I think I can also tease that we are dropping something special on the main feed. We'll let that be a surprise, but uh, you'll you'll be getting more than one episode next week in the main feed. And for those of you who are subscribed to the KingCast Patreon, we have an extra special bonus episode for you this Friday. It's just going to be me, Eric, and we're going to go toe-to-toe over the new Stand miniseries, which is wrapping its run tomorrow. Eric and I have not seen eye-to-eye on this series throughout. This is going to be an interesting conversation. And, yeah, we're um, we're gonna we're gonna be weighing the pros, the cons, what they got right, what they got wrong, um, mm-hmm. and we'll we'll argue a little bit over over our perceived wrongs and rights, I'm sure. But uh, this will just be two king nerds kind of talking through what we got from the CBS All Access. Two men enter, one man leave. That's the rule. <laughs> Let me get Master Blaster out here to help me. Do we have anything else we need to tell the people? No. No, just, uh, you know, the usual rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, You can follow us at KingCast19 on Twitter and uh, definitely sign up for our Patreon. If you haven't, we got a lot of good stuff for you over there. And you can do that at patreon.com backslash the KingCast. And definitely uh, rate us over on iTunes this week, because uh, I'm pretty sure we're going to get pilloried again for that uh, rant. (laughs) I I went on mid episode about Trump. Sorry, yeah, we can, myself. Fuck that dude. We could almost see the the iTunes star rating dropping as we were talking <laughs> yeah. about uh, about Keep the maggot influences out of my out of my podcast materials. <laughs> so we'll see you guys next week in the main feed for Stephen King's It and uh, on the Patreon for a discussion all in on the stand. See you then, folks. The Kingcast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. 